Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 144, recorded on February 8th, 2020. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. Good to be connected with you. So we start today with an update that we've eagerly been waiting for. This is the end-of-life announcement for CoreOS Container Linux, and we finally got some documentation telling people how to migrate over to Fedora CoreOS. Right, as we've previously covered on the show, Fedora CoreOS is the official successor to CoreOS Container Linux. Fedora CoreOS is a new Fedora edition that's built specifically for running containerized workloads at scale. There's certain features that CoreOS Container Linux had, like automatic updates, etcd technology. They're combining that with some of the core technologies of Atomic Host, like the SE Linux security model, the packaging system, OCI support, and creating a new distribution. It's not much of a direct migration, unfortunately. In fact, they write, beware that Fedora CoreOS cannot currently replace container Linux for all use cases, including it does not yet have native support for Azure, DigitalOcean, Vagrant, or many of the other platforms where container Linux was very popular. It was popular in DigitalOcean in particular. And... Fedora CoreOS takes what they call a best effort at stability, but they write may occasionally include regressions or breaking changes for some use cases or workloads. And that was not the case with Container CoreOS's version of Container Linux. It was very much meant for production-grade systems. So it's not a, not a perfect solution here. There is a fork, obviously, of the previous CoreOS Container Linux, but this is not great, and it's not a great look either, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. It's not a great look. It's funny that they say you may want to consider flat car container Linux, which is the fork. Um, but they also just casually drop in, or, you know, Red Hat OpenShift, which includes RHEL Core OS, you know, if you want to pay us a bunch of money. Yeah, I, I'm left to conclude there must not have been a lot of Core OS container Linux users. I have a sense they'd be treading more lightly here if this was affecting millions of installs. This is likely... I would imagine in the low tens of thousands, potentially, maybe even less. It's a very aggressive timeline, though. Effective immediately, CoreOS Container Linux is no longer available on the AWS marketplace. That's Think about that. In the past, if a Linux distro goes away, you can generally still find the ISO somewhere. But in the cloud world, they can just remove it from the marketplace. It's, it's a much more dramatic death of a distribution. On May 26, final updates to CoreOS Container Linux roll out. Any bugs... Any vulnerabilities after that will not get fixed. And then some big dates land. On or after September 1st, all of the published resources related to CoreOS Container Linux will be made read-only, like GitHub, repos, things like that, issue trackers. And you're done. So you have September essentially as your very last day to run before you need to migrate to something else. It's fairly aggressive. Yeah, and you really ought to have migrated long before that. Imagine if you've built a load of scripts and everything that can interact with the API for AWS, and suddenly they're just worthless because there's no image available anymore. Yeah, or entire workflows. Uh, I, I just look at this and I think, okay, we must be talking about a small set of thousands of users, and the team looked at it and said, we've only got so much resources to go around. We've got to build this new platform and get it as stable and viable for people that are migrating as possible. And the longer we maintain the old system the less we can do that. Like, they have less resources to go around if they're split between CoreOS Container Linux and the new Fedora Container Linux. There's just only so many people and so much man hours. 
And I can I can appreciate a tough spot, especially when you're talking not millions of users here. You're talking maybe five, ten thousand, maybe fifteen thousand users. Who knows, right? But it's a small number, I'm assuming. And you don't want to do what looks bad, but at the same time, you got to do what'll make the future project successful. It was almost two years right around now, as we record this, January 30th, 2018, the Red Hat announced it was acquiring CoreOS. And January 31st, 2018, everyone, including you and I, was asking, well, what are you going to do with the overlap between Atomic and CoreOS Container Linux? And I guess I just hoped after two years, the answer would be a little more flushed out. Well, the only conclusion I can draw from this is that they must have had a small number of users, otherwise they would have cared more about this and put more resources into this and made the transition a little bit easier. Well, there's a small number of new users that can get their hands on Google's Enterprise Edition of Glass now. Yeah, this was a pretty low-key post this week on the Google Developers blog, just casually saying that the Glass Enterprise Edition 2 is now available for any developer who wants it through one of our resellers. That's literally it. It's essentially technically like a four-paragraph PR release, but when you dig in here, what they're saying is there's three new distributors that anybody that really is motivated can go to now to get their hands on Glass, which is the new refined edition that is more targeted at enterprise applications, which is how they really focus it. They, they write in here, Google Glass Enterprise Edition 2 has helped people working in logistics, manufacturing, field services, and a variety of other industries to do their job more effectively. And then they stress that it uses Android, and it's easy to work with, and then you can integrate it with your existing services and APIs because Android. Yeah, and for this relatively low-end hardware with no expensive screen and a small-ish battery, you're going to be paying just over $1,000. Bargain. I know, it does seem like a lot of money. But then I was kind of contemplating if Apple or Samsung or somebody else were to get into this game, I could see their glasses being even more expensive for some augmented reality solution. There is an open-source story to this update as well. It's, again kind of buried in this really low-key blog post, but they have a batch of code samples that they've open-sourced to write apps that make it essentially crazy easy for a business to go grab these, tweak them a little bit, and now they've got enterprise glasses apps. <laughs> this is this whole world it seems silly to me. However, if I had to look under the hood of an engine for something to fix... Uh, I'd totally like something like this. Even if it was an app on my phone, I'd love to be able to point it at my engine and have it tell me everything in there and describe everything and replacement item numbers. And I mean, if these things could get really smart where some average guy like me could pop a hood and get an idea of, you know, here's my transmission fluid cap. What's the right transmission fluid? And it just looks at that and says, okay, well, you've got a Golf 2018 it takes this kind of transmission fluid. Boop, boop, boop. And you put it right here and it puts a little box around it for me. I'd love something like that. I don't know if I want glasses because I think the frequency in which I would use it would be so rare that something on my phone would do fine. I could see it for companies where you're doing that kind of stuff all day, though. I had that exact same situation yesterday. I was in an unfamiliar car that I'd borrowed and I needed to put some petrol in it, gasoline, as you would say. And so I get to the petrol station and I get out and I can't open the flap thing. And I'm like, what? And, and then I, it took me, I'm not joking, 10 minutes to think about it. Well, maybe five minutes. And I had to Google how to do it. And then it turned out that there was this little flap thing that I had to pull 
Whereas my one on my old car, you just literally pull it open. Whereas if I'd had some sort of augmented reality app that I could just either on glasses or on my phone look around the car and then it would show me what all the the buttons did or whatever, then it would have been much, much quicker. And you're right, for consumers, that doesn't make sense. An app on your phone makes way more sense than having a pair of glasses. But if you're doing that all day, every day as part of manufacturing and you need to have various data, it makes a lot of sense to have glasses. So I I think that they're probably going to have to get the price down for it to really succeed in enterprise and compete with the others. But I can see this living on. It, It seems to be that Google project that you think is dead, but just keeps on trucking somehow. Yeah, there must be some some use out there. And I, I think about this kind of the same way I think about home smart tubes in that I think people who are skeptical of the Echoes and the Google Home products, well, I mean, besides their security implications, but people that just don't see the point at all, I can walk to the light switch. I don't need to talk to a tube. Those people? Like me. Yeah. <laughs> What you don't realize until you use one is there is a lot of utility in having access to some form of computing while your hands are busy or you're full, uh, you're either full, you're carrying something, or you're inside working on something and you can just yell at something and have it do something. It's really useful. The hands-free nature of it when you're coming through the front door and you can turn some lights on or turn a heater on or you can turn on a coffee pot or, I don't know, in, in the case of manufacturing, it would be probably turn on or off a sensor or something like that and you could be working on it while you have this information in front of your face without ever having to actually touch the device. So you can always keep your hands dirty. They can be covered in something. You can be working on something. We don't really appreciate how useful that is until you've used it a few times, and you get that effect with the smart tubes. I think it'd be tenfold with something that was beaming visuals directly into your retina constantly. Do you remember in the 90s, you had that Bluetooth guy, you know, the Bluetooth headset guy, and that was just a complete joke, and no one would seriously want to do that, and you'd have to be that guy to do it, and it was in comedy sketches and everything. Yeah. And then fast forward, here we are in 2020, and AirPods are a fashion accessory, and they're basically a Bluetooth headset. So could it be that eventually people get used to the idea of having some augmented reality glasses, and it does become a consumer product? Yes. I see it already happening all the time. And these several several companies, (laughs) more than several, are making AirPod competitors that have smart assistants built in and um, one of the things that the new AirPods Pro feature is the ability to do passive audio. So they use the microphones on the things and they EQ it slightly to cut out some of the like lows, I think. Uh, so they pass audio in, but it's augmented audio. It's been EQ'd. It's not just flat audio coming into your ears. And so it's it's a small form of enhanced audio. And then you have, of course, the Siri assistant, and you can squeeze them, and it silences the whole world. And you can you can have these things. You can be walking around, and you don't hear the rest of the world. And, um, I mean, that's, that to me, it's both freaky. I, I just recently went kind of on a side rant somewhere else about this. It's freaky because these things are selling at such a rate that there's an obvious market demand for them, but yet we have nothing from the free software community that really also provides that same functionality when you also then connect all of these back to services like Google Glass will require, which is also proprietary, restrictive, and often spying on its users. And we have nothing in the free software community like these things. 
it really bothers me. And I think the Apple Watch, AirPods, Google Glass, Fitbits, they all kind of fall into this category where I'm looking around going, ooh, I hope we have something that is actually really appealing to the market soon. Well, it'll probably take eyeglasses with an eye and glasses. You see the hilarious pun there from Apple. Uh I reckon that's what it'll take to uh, make this popular. And then maybe there'll be some sort of free software equivalent. That's why all of this makes me think about our Mycroft story this week. It's maybe more important than ever, and they've been targeted by a patent troll. Yeah, Mycroft published a post on their blog this week about what they're calling their first patent troll. And this is a company in Texas who wrote them a highly confidential letter offering to license the valuable patents to Mycroft. And their approach to this is they're not going to pay. They're going to take it all the way in court. Yeah, they say as a result, they developed a new internal policy that reads quite simply, quote, we're going to litigate every single patent suit to the fullest extent possible, including appealing any adverse decisions all the way up to the Supreme Court, end quote. This is nice. I like seeing somebody get fired up and go to the mat about these things. But then I started reflecting on this and I thought, the technology landscape is a patent minefield, but these AI assistants, these personal assistants, these assistants that tie in with ecosystems, that do voice recognition, that speak back, that must be a patent landmine. Mycroft needs to fight this because as soon as they get any kind of large user adoption, I bet the trolls will come out in herds. I never know which way I would go if I was hit with this because on the one hand, you're right. They need to stand up. They need to say, we're not going to take this. Otherwise, everyone else would pile on. But court cases and lawsuits, they cost an awful lot of money and they can ruin businesses. It is a precarious situation they're entering. I think that might be one of the reasons why it's important that we all share it and we spread the word, and we make sure that they get some awareness for this. I could see a potential fundraiser in the future. I wouldn't be too surprised. I think it's pretty great to see Minecraft doing something like this, to be honest with you. So I hope they get the recognition they deserve. Yeah, fingers crossed that they can come out of this in a positive position. I'm not massively hopeful for them, but I do wish them the best, and that's why I thought it was worth mentioning. What might just be our most fascinating story this week, though, is a joint announcement from the GNU Project Leadership and the Free Software Foundation. Yeah, this is a very short announcement, but it says that their mutual aim is to work together as peers while minimizing change in the practical aspects of this cooperation so that we can advance our common free software mission. That is a bit complicated to fully unpack, although I think I follow what it means, but the timing of all of this seems very suspect to me, and that's where the interesting thing comes in. Because certain individuals within the GNU project are currently drafting a social contract for that project. And that social contract is in draft stage. It's got a little more time left in the oven. And then around the end of February, it's going to go into effect. And I note that they are urging folks to send in their opinions on this structure that they're announcing because they plan to finish the framework soon and want to be done by February 13th. Yeah, I first became aware of this GNU social contract when Carlos O'Donnell proposed it on the GNU MISC Discuss mailing list. Yeah, same. Carlos is the team leader, Red Hat, for the GNU C library, which he's also responsible for all of the uses within the Red Hat enterprise line of products. He's also the official FSF steward and core developer of the GNU C library project. So an important figure within the project and at Red Hat. And he writes, I've been working with several other GNU maintainers and volunteers 
to draft a GNU social contract which explains the key commitments we want from the GNU project. The draft is being designed from the ground up by the GNU volunteers and for GNU project volunteers. Is it official? It's official to me and I'll follow it. We have asked for feedback by February 9th to be incorporated in the update draft by February 10th. We've asked for endorsement by current GNU maintainers on or before February 24th. So you see how the timing is working out almost perfect with the announcement from GNU and the FSF. There's obviously some overlap here. Now, as you'd expect, when a social contract is proposed, it's met with a lot of controversy. So I read it. I read the entire social contract. It's uh, essentially one, two, three, four, five paragraphs, very short ones. It starts by outlining that they respect the four essential freedoms, which you've heard before if you've ever heard RMS list them out for you. It also lays out that the GNU project adopts policies that encourage and enable developers to actively defend user freedom. In fact, the only part that seems to really have gotten everyone outraged is the part that says they just want to include everyone. They say regardless of gender, ethnicity, sexual orientation, level of experience, any other personal characteristics. But longtime members, and not everyone, but some, we'll have some examples in the show notes, seem to believe that this is essentially a takeover. What's happening here is a coup to put in new leadership. And quote, the feature of the GNU project is that it has no social contract, end quote. And that the belief is a lack of a social contract is what has made the project successful and made it truly open to all contributors. I think some within the project essentially see this as a power vacuum type crap, while others in the project see this as a way to tell the outside world these are our core ideals and if they don't align with you, you're probably not a great contributor. And if they do align with you, you're probably a great fit for our project. And I'll tell you something, when I read that social contract, it was probably the most direct clarification of the GNU project and how they see themselves fitting in in the overall free software ecosystem that I've ever seen from them. That social contract, if you just read it as an introduction to the GNU project, is fantastic. In fact, it doesn't even read as any kind of contract. It's a great clarification of what the GNU project is, and they should put it on their front page. But it has been met with that resistance. There does seem to be a split in the project. Not everyone's on board with this. I agree. But that seems to be potentially the core story behind this mutual cooperation update that's been announced with this really tight timeline. I get the feeling this isn't going to be the last we'll hear of this. I think over the next week or two, we're going to be hearing an awful lot more. Well, a couple of other things we're watching right now is some fundraisers in the community. Yeah, the first one's for the family of Mark Greaves, who was the lead developer of Peppermint OS. Yeah, we mentioned that recently on the show. Mark left behind two kids and a wife, and I think there's something sort of poetic about maybe his passion project that took a little bit of time from the family could help make this transition easier for the family. So we'll have a link to the GoFundMe in the show notes. And on a happier note, we have some great news from the folks at Elementary OS. Yeah, they have an Indiegogo campaign that they're calling App Center for Everyone. And I put this in kind of thinking that we'd help them out, but they're already at 81% of their goal. So I think they're doing okay. I'd love to see them smash it, to be honest. The project could use the funding. There's four things they're going for with this Indiegogo campaign, which is really to get them all together in an in-person one-week sprint. Number one, they want to improve the privacy and security and stability of the App Center and the apps that get distributed, sandboxing, things like that. But I think out of this four here, 
Streamlining the payment process is nice, but it's really number four. Expanding the market for App Center apps by making them easily available on other Linux-based operating systems, i.e., making the back-end payment technology something that works with Flatpak and is available for developers across all distributions, making a simple, easy way that's part of a development process to charge for Linux apps that's worked really well on elementary OS. That could have some potential, and it seems to be drawing in the funding. I must say my first reaction to this was crowdfunding a company sprint. That's unusual. That's not how most people do it. But then I thought more about it and I thought, well, Elementary OS is a project and a company that does things differently in the desktop Linux space. They're never afraid to charge money for things and raise money and do things a little bit differently. So I think fair play to them, really. It's clearly very popular and they're almost at their goal with only a couple of days of social media promotion. So I can see this smashing way beyond the 10,000. And they said that they will invest that money in Elementary OS and App Center through contractors. I talked to Dan about it, and I take his word at that. I'm going to have Dan and Cassidy on Tuesday's Linux Unplugged. I've got some questions for them to get a few clarifications. But I think people get it, and I think they read their user base accurately on this. People understand that when you bring the the lead developers of a project together in one room for a week, great things happen for the end users. It has really good knock-on effects. And Elementary OS has already demonstrated that in the past. And so they've they've kind of shown a record of delivering on it when when the users step up. And I do like this approach. I, I would like to see them make even more money at it because I think the project could use better funding still. But I am not even a primary user. I have family that uses Elementary OS, and I backed it. I tell you, at the end of the day, I think it was the donuts and the picture with the mug that really got me. And that cool hoodie that they've got, that seems to be very popular. I might have to ask Dan for one of those privately when we next record user error. (laughs) (laughs) That would be so unfair. I paid hard money for my mug. (laughs) (laughs) Do check out user error. Episode 84 was fantastic. Air.show slash 84. And then once you've listened to those, go back and listen to the last few. But you can just start with the latest one. And then be sure to subscribe to us at linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And you can go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joel Ressington. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. See you later. See you later.